Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Burnick, and joining me today are Fine Woodworking Executive Art Director Mike Beckovich. Hey, guys. And Senior Editor John Binzen. Hey there. As always, uh, remember to spread the word to your fellow woodworkers about this podcast. Stop by our iTunes page, leave a comment, maybe a sweet rating. You can even check us out over at iHeartRadio. Uh, so before we uh, start things off with questions this week, I had, um, had a few things to mention. I've got right. a long laundry list, actually. <laughs> um, so every once in a while, you get, if you woodwork, you get strange requests. Hmm. Um, can you build me one of these? Or can you repair this? Or, and usually it's, can you repair a broken chair, rung, sure. um, something like that. Uh, and I got uh, actually an odd request from uh, my wife's cousin, Lawrence, who is a weaver, uh, to repair his loom, which um, cool. I know nothing about looms. Yeah. But now I know what a beater arm is. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> a what? <laughs> a, a beater arm, this is, the, this is like the frame on the loom. If you're sitting in front of the loom, it's the frame that goes back and forth in front of you, forward and backward, forward and backward, forward and backward. Okay. And for the, the beater arm to work correctly, the two vertical pieces of this assembly have to be nice and square and flat and not cupped. Okay. And his were, uh, or bowed rather, his were bowed outward. So that resulted in his beater arm not um, functioning squarely to the frame. Huh. And so a quick look at the end grain of the two, these two, you know, bowed beater arms uh, let us realize that it was made of flat sawn maple. So it, and it's okay. thin. It's, it's just under a quarter inch thick. Or, I'm sorry, just under three quarters of an inch thick. Okay. So it bowed over time. And so... Um, Is there a lot of stress placed on this? Is there... No, I don't think it's a, I mean, there's a little bit of stress, but I I don't think it's necessarily a ton, but I I can't speak, you know, I I could be a complete idiot with that comment. So we, uh, we made a pattern, Lawrence and I headed to the basement of the Ed workshop in Fairfield, Connecticut, and we made a nice little pattern of his piece and I outlined all the drill holes and stuff because I couldn't keep the original with me. Oh, okay. And that really sucked. So what'd you make it out of? uh, I made it out of quarter sawn white oak, um, which was... Uh, I, I milled it over the course of a week. I mean, I got really, really obsessive compulsive. Sure. And I took little bits off over the course of a week so it wouldn't, you know, wouldn't move on me. And then I cut all the joinery. It has dados and things in it and bridle joints and stuff in it. Cut all that with a piece square. And then I sealed it up with a little bit of uh, shellac. And now I'm getting ready maybe on, I don't know, maybe on Friday if I have time. I have to cut now a nice little curved profile to it. And uh, But I want to get some finish on it just to... I don't know. Keep it from moving a little bit? Yeah, a little mm, bit, you know. Okay. Um, I probably didn't need to, need to do that, but uh, anyhow. Well, that's those... pretty cool. That's one of those things where it would be tough if you didn't know how to woodwork and you had to hire out something like that. But you, with your skills, it didn't sound like it was that big of a deal for you. Nah. But if you added up like the years of experience into milling stock, understanding wood movement, making dados and bridle joints... That's kind of neat. It's kind of a neat way for you to use all these skills that you've invested in over these years to help somebody out. Yeah. So it was an was in- interesting little project, and I learned about weaving in the process. So what, Lawrence, there you go. So what, uh, what was he weaving? What is, what is he doing um, on Loom? He, he's only been weaving since, like, October, um, and he's gotten quite accomplished. He's been doing, like, scarves, and he's playing. He's trying to invent his own patterns and stuff. I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's one thing to reproduce someone else's patterns with any art. You know, you, it's easy to reproduce or do something that's derivative, but he's been playing with um, a lot of different um, 
weaving patterns cool. that are kind of funky. He brought a, over a whole bunch of them uh, a couple weekends ago. And, uh, yeah, it's neat stuff. And Lawrence is a good guy and helped us out when we moved into our new house. So we wanted to return the favor. So. Awesome. You weave quite a bit, John, don't you? Oh, yeah. Every spare moment I'm out there <laughs> weaving my portable loom. It's, it's electric, right, John? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and then the other interesting little anecdote uh, for this week. So here we go. So I was at an art opening uh, in New York State mm-hmm. with my wife. And um, I happened to be looking at a couple of paintings with my daughter. And while I was looking at the paintings, this older woman came up and started chatting me up and, uh, you know, about art and whatnot. And she asked me, she said, oh, are you an artist? And, and I said, well, I, I don't know. May, may, I, I build furniture. That's, I, I consider that art. There's a big debate whether you're an artist, if you're a furniture maker or not. I believe you are. Um, so then she said, oh, do you know who Boulet is? That's how she pronounced it. And I said, well, do you mean Andre Boulle, the, uh, the court furniture maker for King Louis Fourteenth? I think it was 14. There are a lot of Louis out there. Anyhow. One of those Louis. So she was suitably impressed, right? And um, uh, just so now, let me put this into perspective, what I'm about to say. Andre Charles Boulle was a court furniture maker for one of the Louis, okay? He invented what we call, or I guess he became famous for what we now call bull marquetry, where you have a packet of, let's say, a black piece of wood and a white piece of wood to make this simple. And you have a, you've stenciled on. They're stacked up. They're stacked up, and you've drawn your intricate outline there, and you you sew it out on this thing that looks like a scroll saw. It's called a donkey. I believe it was the original, um, you know, non-electrically powered tool. And what you get when you saw this out and then take the packet apart is um, – yeah, how, how do you term this, John? Uh, I guess a positive a and a positive negative. positive and a negative, yep. So you can build – for example, if you're building one table with intricate black patterns, well, hey, now you can do two because you have the black and the white and blah, 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 blah. So bull pieces go for many millions of dollars, hmm. right? So the woman comments to me. She says, um, well, I have two bull pieces. It's not boule. It's boule. Uh, I have two. And I said, oh, really? I'd say if you have two, you can pronounce it any way you want. <laughs> you, yeah, I think okay. you're right. And, and you are correct. It gets yes. better. It gets better. I said, well, where did you come across two pieces by Andre Boulle? And she said, ah, I found them at auctions here in the U.S. These auction houses, they have no idea what they have half the time. Was she, was she American? She was not. No. Uh, I don't know what she was, but she was not. She had an accent of some sort. So um, I... Uh, I, I, so she, apparently she got these for a steal at an auction stateside. And then I, I, I was kind of taken aback, and then she went on to say, that, yes, I, I restored them myself. And then I was taken mm. aback even more. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> is, is, she, is that her job? Is she a professional nope, restoration No, I person? asked her. No. Nope. Okay. No, no. no I, I'm, I'm imagining, you know, going to the Home Depot, getting some citrus stripper. Let's get off all this mm. old varnish. I don't know what she did. But um, she did know what she was talking about. With regards to the packet and, you know, working on the, the marquetry and this and that. Hmm. But I, I just came away wondering, A, is she crazy? B, is she just really, really rich? Or C, is she really rich but really crazy to have attempted the work herself to restore it? Because I'd be terrified to touch one of these things. Um, and I, I don't know what the answer is. All names shall remain anonymous. <laughs> I won't. Um, but I just, I cannot, like, what? How can you possibly have two, two pieces by this guy? That is amazing. Is this, do you guys find this as dubious as I do? 
It uh, sounds a little dubious. What's dubious but, is the fact you're hanging out at art shows with people <laughs> who own uh, expensive pieces of furniture, Ed. I'm wondering, uh, are you moonlighting? Do you have a second or third or fourth job you're not telling us about? Mike, you do know that I'm one of uh, several heirs to the Havana shipyards in Havana, Cuba. Okay. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm loaded with wealth. Can't touch any of it, but no. <laughs> um, no, but, uh, but no, I just, I, it was just somebody I met at an art, an art opening, a gallery opening, and it was just totally random. Huh. And I just stood there like, are you, what? There's no way. Well, maybe no when way. she says she restored them, it's in the yeah. same sense that she might say, um, I mowed my lawn, meaning she didn't step anywhere near mowing oh, no, the I lawn asked her. or restoring of the pieces. I she said, really did. I asked her to clarify, like, you huh. did this yourself? And she, yes, she did. She right. claims she did it herself. So I... I don't know. I, I, uh, well, I always feel like um, when you get pushback from people about even touching a piece that was made more than 50 years ago, that it's, uh, it's just seems nonsense. It's crazy. Yeah. I would always – if I'm going to buy something, I'm going to do whatever I want to it. If I want to paint the thing or strip the paint. I'm going to do it, but I have to say that this example pushes the limits <laughs> of my, of my yes, cavalier attitude just a little bit. Yes. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, if if I'm in a position to own it, then it means I really can't screw it up. Yeah. However, this is a different situation. Exactly. Here. Yeah. I, I don't want to screw up a five million dollar piece of furniture. Right. Um, so, who knows if it was real or not? I just thought it was um, it was an interesting little anecdote. And finally, for this week, perhaps the most interesting for our segue segment is this. Um, folks might recall that on the last. Um, podcast episode that was 56, we had received an email from a guy with a photograph of his bandaged finger where he alleged that he suffered a serious kickback injury at the table saw while using a riving knife. And we, you, uh, Mike, and uh, myself and Matt, we, again, another example of saying, like, that's a dubious story at best. Um, you know, we, we just didn't know what to make of this. It was a very concise email that we received. It was anonymous, no name attached to it, nothing. So we kind of ribbed this guy like, oh, who is this Mr. Anonymous? And he wrote back. So here we go. <clears throat> Pardon me. I'm going to do a little bit of paraphrasing because this is a little wordy. But uh, he says, let, and his name is Billy, all right? And he says, let me start by saying, how dare you make light of a serious injury and furthermore, no, 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 just kidding. I was laughing out loud on the treadmill listening to the discussion about my accident. Um, sorry about being anonymous. I must have forgotten to leave my name. Um, at, it's, okay, so then he goes on. As to the question of whether the finger was even cut, I give you exhibit number one, taken approximately four weeks after the cut. And we have these photographs these proving that, okay, he messed up his finger. Which you don't want to see. You don't want to so see. So lucky we're on yeah. radio. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not posting these. Um, now, apparently this accident happened back in February, which on top of everything else caused him to miss the class that Mike Pekovich and Matt Kenny were teaching in New Jersey the following week. Not happy about that. He was in his garage cutting walnut. I had the riving knife up. Smart. Goggles on. Smart. Using a push stick. Smart. I had made 99% of the cut when the feel of the pushing felt different and the noise changed. I immediately moved out of the way, fearing kickback. Smart. The cut finished, and the piece that I had ripped off began vibrating, and I went to push it on, push it away on the far side of the knife uh, to make the wood move away from the blade without shutting the saw off. Not smart. Anyway, as I went to do so, the wood had a slight bounce, um, and that's when he thinks he instinctively went to grab the wood, as unsmart as humanly possible, I know. The next second is a bit of a blur. I can tell you I saw a flash of light, 
heard a bang, and felt what I can only describe as the feeling of having my hands smashed with a hammer. And then the fun began. Reattachment, bone setting, and all this crazy stuff. Um, so before I, I finish with his comments, because there's another interesting tidbit at the end of this. Um, what happened here? It doesn't, it sounds like there was a bit of user error involved with that whole hand move to get the off cut. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it sounds, it sounds like that off cut that's sort of vibrating on the, you know, outside of the, of the blade away from the rip fence somehow vibrated and contacted the, the blade itself. It sounds like it hit the, the, back of the blade where the teeth are coming up out of the saw and that somehow propelled the piece. The now freed off cut so, yeah. came in contact with the back teeth. So it was kind of angled and backed into the blade somehow. Sounds like it. And it sounds like, when he says it sounds like a hammer, you heard a bang and you felt like your hand was hit by a hammer. That sounded like that piece went somewhere and it's still not clear to me, if, Billy, if, you're, if your finger actually contacted the blade or if this projectile off cut actually did the damage to your finger. And the reason I'm wondering this is because I just had a kind of a near-death experience in my shop this weekend myself. Um, not literally, it just sort of felt that way. I was um, uh, making, uh, just cutting a small piece in half. I decided to use a rip fence instead of the cross-cut sled. Um, it was safe enough to do, to do so, but it left kind of a square off-cut, maybe two inches by three inches sitting to the outside of the blade. Um, and I made the cut, and this little square was just rattling around on the back half of the blade. I fortunately didn't try to reach it or, or grab it or anything like that. But before I could do anything to turn the saw off, it did rotate into the back of the blade, and it moved instantaneously. It just disappeared. Um, in a split second, um, I felt this horrible pain in my thumb on my left hand, which was about maybe two or three feet back from the blade. And basically this little off cut hit the blade. It spun around like a Frisbee faster than I could even see it. And it just somehow targeted my thumb nail <laughs> on my opposite hand and just like nailed it square in the nail. I had this perfectly square black and blue mark there. And it just scared the crap out of me because of how quickly it happened. You know, I, I know this. I understand the theory why it happens. Fortunately, I've never you know, been a victim of it uh, to the point of serious injury, but just this little tiny off cut moving so fast and really causing a whole lot of pain in an instant was just the scariest experience. So um, I, I feel for you, Billy, especially when it's combined with a pretty serious injury. And uh, man, this, this woodworking stuff, it'll jump up and bite you. Um, I don't care how many years you've yeah. been doing it, how safe you are. It's inherently dangerous, yeah. as we always say. Inherently dangerous. So anyway... Um, well, it gets more interesting. Now, I, I, um, at first, I wasn't going to read the rest of his comment on the podcast just to, you know, to save time. But then I thought, you know, this might be valuable information for somebody who gets a serious injury in the shop. So uh, regarding his treatment, um, he found this really, he describes a really fantastic doctor who did a lot of follow-up. And um, they used a treatment that he says a lot of doctors don't know about. Uh, it's called A-cell. It stimulates stem cells, and the results are, in my opinion, miraculous. There's new skin where there was none, and the overall healing was sped up. Um, you can Google it and make your own decision, but it seems to be something that every woodworker should know about in case their own doctor does not if they're faced with a similar injury. God forbid. Uh, the product is a game changer. 
It's um, called A-cell? A-cell. I, and I did not do any research on this, so I can't you know, speak to the veracity of, of what uh, Billy's saying. But, yeah, it's something to keep in the back of your head if you ever hmm. have a, a serious um, injury in the shop. Uh, and then he closes by saying, I, of course, will be glad to answer any questions you guys might have. And feel free to contact me via email or cell phone, 555-1212, not his real number. I'm back at work at a limited capacity as a detective with the NYPD so my hours can be wacky. <laughs> now, Billy. Being in the NYPD, uh, I feel I should mention that back when I lived in Brooklyn, I had a rather expensive watch stolen from my apartment during a burglary. <laughs> this would have been in the Sheepshead Bay, um, Gravesend area, uh, East 15th and Avenue U. That was in 2001. I still haven't heard back on the watch's retrieval. Can you look into this, Billy? Please. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now, moving on. No more shameless uh, stuff from Ed. Moving on. Uh, first question of the day. You guys ready? Ready. All right. John, not Benzin, wrote, I see articles frequently for both steam bending and bent lamination for making curved parts, and I'd like to hear some discussion comparing and contrasting the techniques. What are the relative pros and cons for each method? Why do you select one technique over another? Is one preferred in a certain situation over the other? Uh, are there times you would avoid one method in favor of the other? Other things we should know when choosing which technique to use. So the differences between steam bending and bent laminations. What's the deal, guys? This is a Michael Fortune special. I wish you were here. Yeah. John, I know you've uh, written a lot of articles and worked on articles of various bending types. Um, I'll jump in really quick just to describe the, the two basic types, uh, two different ways to bend a piece of wood. Uh, steam bending, basically you're putting a piece of wood into a steam box, heating it to a certain temperature which uh, basically loosens up the, the lignans in the wood and allows you to bend it on a form, clamp it to the form, and it should basically hold its shape. Um, steam bending, it works really well. You do need a lot of things. First, you need wood. Typically, you need green wood. because or air-dried anyway. Yeah, air-dried, sorry. Yeah, because when you kill-dry a stock, you set the lignans or basically the, the glue in the cells, so they really don't want to loosen back up. So um, air-dried stock. Also, certain types of wood bend, uh, steam bend better than others. Yeah, I can I can report on Paduke. You don't want to try bending that. <laughs> we spent about three weeks trying to bend some, some uh, headboard uh, slots some years ago and uh, never quite got there, and we ended up having to do uh, bent laminations instead. Okay. So Paduke, no. no. Uh, a lot of um, ash, cherry, Excellent. maple, oak. Yeah, ash is terrific. Che um, walnut. Uh, I don't know in walnut uh, how that would be. I'm trying to think. Um, so you you need start with the wood. You need a steam box. And then you probably need a compression strap. Now, this is because when you bend a wood you know, over a radius that the outside surface will tend to want to grow and the wood can fracture and fail and you can end up with um, sort of splitting and, and chipping and failure of the stock. So the compression strap actually goes on the outer edge. And so as you bend this stock around a curve, the compression strap keeps the outer edge from expanding and instead compresses the inside face. Um, so that's a second bit of technology. Um, and I think, I haven't done a lot of this, but I think you have issues of spring back where even if you bend it and clamp it to a form, I'm not sure how accurately it maintains that shape. Yeah, I think there's always some spring back and that's one reason why you might, um, want to do a bent lamination because it's more 
um, predictable in the um, shape it'll take after the glue up, and there's there's less spring back. And bent lamination is basically you can take any board, slice it into thin layers, glue it up, bend that glued up stack of plies around a shape, and wait for it to dry. Right? Yeah. Okay. Just glue them together, and the and the, so the advantage is you can do it with any. Uh, wood, uh, one disadvantage is that you get a lot of glue lines on the edge. It's right. visible, and uh, unless you cover that with um, with solid edging. Okay. All right. But you can also – another advantage of um, uh, bent lamination is that you can do wider boards. With with uh, steam bending, you're limited – I mean, there, there are people uh, like – Petter Southall, this guy in England, I know does giant steam bends, but um, typically people are bending stuff in the range of you know three, four inches wide, not a whole lot more. But you with the bent lamination, you can do big wide uh, sheets and bend them. Right, you can do whole cabinet sides. Okay, so it can be more versatile. Yeah, so maybe if I'm doing drawer fronts, maybe big case sides, broad areas, bent lamb is good. If I'm doing chair parts, the backs of chair legs with the bend, sounds like the steam bend might be the way to go. Yeah, right. and and there's some um, higher level um, approaches to using bent lamination where you – Jerry Osgood um, pioneered this method of creating – instead of just having – uh, parallel-sided sheets that you're gluing up together, making uh, tapered lamini and putting them together. And so then the whole board is that when it's finished is thicker on one end than the other. He also did somewhere thin on one end, thick in the middle, thin on the other end. There's all sorts of variations that are pretty cool. I think that's the first time lamini has ever been used on the podcast, John. <laughs> podcast first. Thank you for that contribution. <laughs> so you're right. So if you uh, did a bent lamination of a single thickness piece and you tried to taper it and then you ended up cutting through those glue lines, that would be kind of a hot mess there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm. All right. Right. Cutting through glue lines is a real issue with bent lamination. Got exactly. it. Exactly. That's why you'd want to do the tapered lamini. Lamini. Yes. <laughs> All right. Moving what on. Else, how else can we use this? Like Oreo cookies. Well, that's why I, I call them Mortai. If there are more than one mortise, Mortai. Um, all right. So Matt, Matt's got the next question. Uh, I was hoping you could share your thoughts on paste wax. In your mind, does it put the fine in fine woodworking or is it fine to finish without it? Um, where do we want to go with this? I, I was going to put in my two cents first and then... Uh, I'll, I'll kick it open. I um, I often use paste wax. Uh, after I you know finish my normal finishing process, I'll put on a coat of paste wax, and uh, it does a few things for me. It, it's an additional coat of protection. Um, sometimes, uh, for example, I'm building a humidor right now that's got Wenge uh, edge banding that's very porous, and after I did some wet sanding, uh, I cleaned up everything with uh, a bit of mineral spirits, you know, mm-hmm. to get that sort of white haze off the wood that you sometimes get when you uh, wet sand lacquer. Right. But, you know, as good a job as I did cleaning after the wet sanding, you know, there was still um, a little bit of that wet sludge in the pores, and uh, I used a dark brown paste wax to, you know, to buff that, um, buff the piece, you know, a final satiny finish. But it also filled in those pores a little bit and covered that white stuff. Right. And it works like a charm. Uh, lubricating the sides of drawers, sides and bottoms of drawers and the drawer runners and whatnot. It works great. But the problem is... The maintenance, right? If you commit to wax, 
You've got yeah. maintenance issues. Yeah, I mean, I think the bigger question um, he's speaking to about, you know, do you need to use wax? It, a really important part of the finishing process, we always refer to it as finishing to finish. So even after the, the last coat you brush or wipe on as perfect as it is, it could be too glossy, could have uneven sheen, it could have dust nibs. you got to do something to that last coat of finish. And typically, a really common thing to do is to apply uh, paste wax with steel wool. And actually, the steel wool is doing that finishing of the finish, smoothing it out, evening out the sheen, getting rid of dust nibs. So really, um, you don't have to use paste wax, but you do have to finish the finish somehow. And we actually just did a really cool article by Ben Blackmar. He's one of our newer editors on the staff on doing a polyurethane finish. And Ben, coming from a commercial background, doesn't really mess around with wax. But what he does after that final coat, he takes a piece of just regular printer paper, folds it into quarters or something, and burnishes the surface of the furniture with a piece of paper. And I heard this, and it's just like, what? Okay, Ben, that's, <laughs> that's great. And... It works really well, and I've since I've used it on a small little wall cabinet. So, and it did a good mm. job of getting rid of the dust nibs and leaving just a nice finish. Uh, so, you don't have to use wax. Um, you do want to finish the finish somehow, and typically I do it with wax. Um, there is a sort of a, a misunderstanding that that wax adds protection, especially as it pertains to moisture. Water. Actually, wax is not protective at all. In fact, if you have white spots on your tabletop, it's probably due to water coming in contact with the wax. So as Ed said, you have to, to keep that up. I think wax does offer protection in terms of like scuff resistance. Scuff, yeah. um, and it's also a lot nicer to the touch. I mean, furniture, it's a tactile thing. It's made to come in contact with the user. People, they run their hand across a tabletop or a small box or a drawer front, and that wax surface, I think, feels nice. So um, Yeah, satiny, smooth, yeah. It's not a bad thing. It's not necessary, but um, All right. I don't know. And to Ed's point, open-poured woods, darker woods, definitely use a colored wax because any clear wax will, will get into open-grain wood and turn white. So um, colored oh, wax is a good thing. All right. Well, I say we move on to our first segment of the day, and this is going to be all John, all the time. Uh-oh. So, As uh, it should be. <laughs> <laughs> so John Binzen, um, for those folks who uh, may not know, uh, is the guy in charge of the back cover of the magazine. And uh, before we dive into that, um, I wanted to circle back to um, the last episode, 56. Um, we talked a bit about uh, James Krenov and the College of the Redwoods and Mike had some anecdotes about uh, when he went out uh, for his first big photo shoot for the magazine and had to deal it, with It Mr. didn't Krenov. go well, yeah. No. <laughs> Actually, it sounds like it did go well. It ended up well enough. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I understand, John, you have, and, you know, I, I, I don't want to stay on Krenov, you know, for too long because we had a whole other uh, episode on him. But I know you have some good anecdotes, some good little stories about your experiences with him. So I thought um, I might uh, prod you. Well, about that. Um, I don't know where you got this information about the good stories, but uh, I did uh, know him fairly well, did a number of articles with him. I wrote about him and then also wrote about a lot of people or have written about a lot of people who've gone through the school. Um, and I found him just entirely fascinating. And, you know, in his comfort zone, 
uh, which was as a teacher or, uh, you know, especially one-on-one, he could be absolutely spellbinding. And, um, you know, one of the most fascinating people I've ever met, just listening to him talk. In general? Oh, yeah, in general. I mean, Mm -hmm. he was brilliant. And, uh, but... Out of his comfort zone or whatever this other zone was, he could be brutal. And, you know, I think there were students could attest to that. He could be really tough on some students and very, um, you know, easy on others. Um, And it could be a day to day thing. But um, I've had a number of people tell me I remember uh, I was actually on a trip to go um, interview Kranov one time in Northern California, north of San Francisco. And I flew out in through the uh, San Francisco airport and spent a day or two in San Francisco. And I met um, Gary Knox Bennett at his studio in Oakland, and who is an, uh, an also another huge uh, personality, huge guy and a huge personality. And he told a story about when he heard I was going to be seeing Krenov, he just turned black. He Uh-oh. he said that he re- his first meeting with Kren only, or maybe there was two, but he went up to Krenov. You know, he heard so much about him and wanted to wanted to meet him. And f- for background, Gary Bennett is he's probably in his seventies now, but uh, one of the most uh, prominent furniture makers on the west coast wild work not easily intimidated i understand oh god no <laughs> has that biker mystique about him he does he's a really nice guy but uh-huh. he's also very uh you know he's got a lot of bluster and an, um you know all he's got great stories that guy but um you know, the cocktail started around 10 a.m. And uh, <laughs> I, I was like, no, I don't think I can go there just yet, Gary. But but so he tells the story of meeting Kranov. He's at some party with a bunch of artists and craftspeople. And someone mentioned that Kranov was there. So he walks over to introduce himself Uh-oh. and, um, you know, was really fascinated to meet him. And, um, and he says who he is. And Kranov just looks at him and, it, and says – I know you. And he Ooh. turns on his heel and walks away. Ooh. He doesn't. <laughs> no way. Not he, a he word more. He gave him a more. talk to the hand? Yeah. Oh, what? my God. Yeah. And um, and it went on from there, the the, the uh, unpublishable parts of the story. <laughs> but um, Wow. But meanwhile, um, you know, Gary has his story. And then others have had their lives completely turned around in a good way by yeah. Krenov. Many, you know, I, I've I've never also had more people say to me, you know, I read those books and they changed my life uh, than about Krenov. He, he uh, really had a mm. huge impact on people on paper, but also in person. The people who went to that school when he was there, uh, a lot of them were really deeply affected and still are. Interesting. So what, wait a minute. Wait. A minute. What? What? So you're surmising that he he knew of uh, Gary Bennett's work and he just didn't like his work. Oh yeah, hated his work. Just, and he <laughs> wow. thought he was thought he was wow. kind of the embodiment of everything wrong with craft. Against, yeah. You know, oh, man. people who are kind of self-aggrandizing. Oh, poor and, guy. Um, but you know, Kranov had a similar reaction to anybody who got too much attention too. Like I, he he would call 
Maloof, a router jockey, and I think <laughs> that's I, awesome. I think, I think Sam Maloof had a similar experience. The you know, guy very who has toxic. like rockers in the White House, and yeah, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, and Sam Maloof didn't have a lot of nice things to say about Krenov either, but. Oh, John, you were But I think full it came of... from the other direction. Well, the thing about Krenov, and I mentioned this last week, is I was really influenced by his writing as well. But but for me, he backed it up with really nice furniture. Oh, did he ever? And a lot of the students coming out of the school, too, it's not all necessary Krenov clones. But by and large, the work coming out of the students who've gone there is really fantastic. And I know you've worked with a lot of people who are former Redwoods folks. Yeah, there's a kind of common uh, perception that people who go through the school do make Crinovian stuff. And there is a lot of work, especially by students who are still there. It's yeah. in the vein, it's for sure. It's not a bad, bad place to start. It's not a bad place to start. And there's a number of people who have gone through that training. And, um, you know, they've they've absorbed Krenov's concerns for the craft and for the material and and also something a little um i wouldn't call it spiritual but you know really locking into something very powerful emotionally in their work but their furniture looks nothing like his i mean you have someone like brian newell who makes stuff very different from krenov's but um but you can see a link then you know Mm -hmm. tim coleman and there's a long long list of people making Fabulous stuff, Roth Day. Well, let's Bill Walker. Yeah, I mean, what's what's the common denominator? I would say, I think all these people work that you mentioned. I would say they do very considered work. Every aspect yeah. of, of everything they make, they think about it. Whether it's a joint you see or or the rear joint of a drawer, which you never see unless the drawer falls out. It seems like that attention to detail is pretty consistent with the. Branch Cronovians, as we like to call them. <laughs> exactly. Branch Cronovians. I think you're right. Um, well, this kind of dovetails nicely into um, into the next topic I wanted you to touch upon, and that is the back cover of the magazine. So you mentioned all these phenomenal uh, craftsmen and women who come out of College of the Redwoods, and um, the back cover of Final Working Magazine, um, as a as a publication, we. Uh, we don't follow the normal model in that the back cover is never used for advertising. It's used to highlight the work of some particularly gifted um, artist, uh, woodworker. I think um, that came yeah. – now, I might have this story wrong. I think it, it came about from the very first issue of Fine Woodworking. John's nodding his head, so I'm, you're either going to confirm or deny it. But <laughs> my understanding is they didn't have – they didn't sell the back page mm. ad, which right. is the most prominent ad. And so they just stuck something on the back cover. Yeah, they didn't have anything for – they didn't have a, anyone to buy the back cover, so yes. they just stuck a piece on there. And that's how it's been since. Yeah. And now you edit the back cover, and you find all these crazy cats who are doing incredible, just mind-boggling work. And it's the kind of work that oftentimes we probably wouldn't have sufficient editorial space to cover in a, you know, in a big article. Or it's something that it's incredible, but it's a really esoteric piece – that might not fit in, you know, for a six-page spread in the magazine, but we really want to highlight it. Um, how do you find these guys? Well, finding them, um, it comes in. They come in a lot of different ways. You know, partly it's um, just keeping track. These days, a lot of my uh, legwork is done on the web. Um, you know, I keep track of a whole lot of different people through their websites and through 
shows uh, attended in person or checked out online. Um, and also I keep um, uh, lines open to various schools and people that I know who know a lot of others. Um, and um, it's a bit mysterious to me. I don't know. Um, but uh, when the deadlines are approaching, somehow <laughs> they kind of come to end. But um, but Mike was talking about it earlier that uh, you know wondering what the common the denominator common, common is denominator, yeah. uh, among the people, and I I don't know if I uh, have a real um, you know definitive answer. But one thing that's immediately clear to me is that passion for the craft is is something that you find in every one of them and um and you know we don't we we try not to feature things that are too out there mm -hmm. um you know we want them to be inspiring uh not just you know wow way but like oh yeah i could maybe try something like that so you know you have something like uh peter sandback making his oh, tables yeah. with the little aluminum siding nails that he hammers oh, yes. in and, and yeah. different some. patterns and cuts them smooth. So cool. And he does an amazing job of it. But anybody could. Anybody could try that. Yeah. Um, you know what he's a good example of? And I, I wonder if this is part of your criteria, um, whether it's purposeful or inadvertent. So artists are always – good artists are always struggling to find their own style, to formulate their own style. Um, and in woodworking – I would argue, like a lot of art, um, it's very easy to do derivative stuff. Uh, it's very difficult to really find your own style. And a lot of the things, like Peter Sandback, that's a perfect example. Like he, I've never seen that technique, you know, anywhere. Like he kind of came up with that technique. It's very unique to him. That's part of what makes his work different from the pack. Um, yeah, along those lines, one of my favorite things about the back covers is that you'll look at a back cover and say, wow, that's really inspiring. That's really cool. And I think, oh, how do you do that? Could I do something like that? But um, accompanying almost every back cover, John, you put together a little slideshow of other work by the same artist and a, a little bit of voiceover talking about their path and their journey. And when I watch those slideshows, I realize what a long creative journey it was for that person to arrive at this one particular piece. And it isn't just this one piece they've made. Sometimes it's dozens or mm -hmm. more of pieces that represent this constant struggle, this evolution of craftsmanship, technique, design in order to reach this really nice stuff. And that's the stuff that blows me away. It's like, oh my gosh, it isn't just Oh, I ended up in my garage, and look what came out. This is great. Yeah. It's like, no, this is what I've dedicated my my life to, and I just wonder, man, these guys just can't have kids because otherwise <laughs> you just wouldn't have time to, to devote to that. In fact, I think Adrian McCurdy, didn't he say he this was instead of a family, he's a, a furniture yeah, maker or something. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. He's, Adrian is, is one of the uh, you know, I really loved his work. He everything he makes is riven. Um, he's in Scotland, and um, he's one of the people that I thought of when I was thinking about what Ed brings up the question of exploration and individuality in your work. And I think that's definitely a common denominator too. That that's part of what really um, jazzes me is to see work that I haven't seen before. Not different for its own sake, but something like Mike saying, something hard won and something really um, that's sound. It's been worked out. And um, 
but it still really has a freshness to it because it's it is something very individual and i th- so i think it's that creativity and exploration kind of blended together is found in pretty much all these people but to get to the slideshow um masters of the craft masters of your the craft your own blog <laughs> Um, I was thinking about Danny Kamarath, who did the back cover just a, an issue or two ago. The little the splash bowls, the splash yeah. bowls, awesome, yeah. yeah. And I mean, those are so cool, and they're they're you know they're a great example of something that's a fresh idea. But he's been working that out for a long time and working out those techniques of carving. Uh, for a long time. But you look at his slideshow, it's not just carving. The guy has done all sorts of different creative things that are really very cool. And you get to come up with all those neat headlines like Danny Kamarath makes a splash and Peter (laughs) Sandback nails it. (laughs) Love those headlines. Um, All right. Well, should we answer some more questions? Sure. Let's go for it. Here we go. From Scott. I just listened to the latest podcast, and you discussed using epoxy to fill cracks and voids in slabs. I did this on a 2-inch thick slab tabletop a while back using T88 epoxy, and while the end result was fine, I ran into two issues during the process. First, as I'd mix the clear epoxy in the cup, it would fill with air bubbles and turn a sort of opaque color. During the application and hardening time, most of the air would work its way out, but there seemed to always be some bubbles that would be trapped in the hardened epoxy. Not a big deal until I'd plane it flush with the wood surface, cutting through some of the bubbles and leaving noticeable little cavities in the surface. The second issue was that I had to reapply epoxy multiple times to the same cracks in order to fully fill the voids because it would continue to flow down into cracks as it hardened. I even tried carefully warming the epoxy to make it less viscous so it would be more apt to flow in and fill the voids on the first try. This became rather time-consuming, so I wonder, is there a better way to go about it? So he's got... He's got two issues. Um, The first issue are air bubbles. Second issue is, is there a way to get this done in one coat of epoxy? Um, Gentlemen? Uh, Two concerns with air bubbles. One is if you're using untinted epoxy, those air bubbles will sort of be evident in the – through the thickness of the epoxy. Um, The notion that you put clear epoxy in and it'll be sort of invisible really doesn't work. So whenever I use it, and we talked about this a little while back, um, I always prefer to tint it. I usually, you can use India ink, black pigment. Um, Black actually tends to work pretty well because yeah, we talked of, about this last time right? yeah instead of trying to hide something or make it invisible you you just sort of draw attention to it it looks like a natural defect so tinting will get rid of the air bubble problem within the clear epoxy because it's not clear anymore and then your other point about it you know sinking down a little bit and having to add other layers or when you do smooth it you expose air bubbles that's the nature of working with epoxy and the short answer, there really isn't an easy way to work around it. You just sort of expect it. So, yeah, a couple coats with the anticipation that one is going to be slightly, you know, shallow of the surface. So you you want to build up that final coat proud. And then when you do smooth it, you have some air bubbles. You just got to mix up another batch, fill them in, and, and smooth it again. Do you ever work with epoxy at Not all, really. Not, no. But I would be afraid of viscous epoxy. I'll say that. <laughs> I have... Yeah, I, I've always usually found that I, I do a second coat because the first one always kind of, yeah, it kind of flows down into the yeah. into the occlusion and then you come back and you hit it. And like you said, you want to be proud of the surface to flush it smooth. So 
big deal. So you have to put on a second coat. Uh, quit complaining, <laughs> baby. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You're going to get a mailing with some viscous I'm going yes. to get them. I, I get lots of emails, John. Um, what, what, uh, what, what nasty moniker would you like to call me this week? Um, all right, so next question. This comes from Randy, and Randy wrote, I recently bought a chisel plane with a one and three quarter inch blade to clean up glue lines, plane plugs flush to the surface, and similar jobs. It looks simple to set up, but it seems as if I either don't take a deep enough cut or too deep a cut, which causes a little of the gouging I'm trying to avoid. Questions. One, is it better to plane glue lines across the glue line or grain or along it with a chisel plane? Two, can you give me any tips on setting the chisel plane to avoid the problems I'm having? with the gouging. Three, how about other uses besides the one I already know about for this tool? So let's let's take these one by one, guys. Number one was, uh, is it better to plane glue lines across the line perpendicular to it with a chisel plane? I would say- With a chisel plane? I would say none, <laughs> none. The answer- None of the above. None of the above. Um, I think the chisel plane is the wrong tool to be scraping glue off. I like to use a, just a card scraper or sometimes a cabinet scraper. Um, the chisel plane, now back to the chisel plane, you described perfectly um, sort of the conundrum of the chisel plane mm. in that the, the chisel plane it, is basically a hand plane where the blade is mounted at the front of the body. So there's no bearing surface forward at the blade edge, which means if you set the blade deep enough to take a cut, then there's really nothing stopping the whole plane from tilting forward and digging in. And if you set it shallow enough so it doesn't dig in, it then ain't gonna flush. It doesn't cut. <laughs> so it's sort of a tool that is kind of designed not to work. So oh. um, I'd say if you want a, a really cheap version of a chisel plane that actually works really well, when you need to get right into a corner, take your regular bevel edge bench chisel, flip it upside down, bevel side down. And there's your chisel plane. And even then, I still wouldn't recommend using that for glue because of the, the whole dig-in factor. Scraper will scrape it off and not Hold dig on. In. Hold on. I'm going to disagree slightly with you. I have a special crappy chisel that I use specifically for this purpose. I don't keep it sh honed really, really sharp. Mm. It just has a little bit of edge, not much, because if I glue up a panel... I wait about an hour for the glue to gel, not to harden, but it kind of gels. Kind of leather up a little bit. Right. Yeah. And then I take my crappy old chisel, I put it beveled down, and I carefully, granted, I carefully just kind of scoop up that long line. And I I never have problems gouging my wood. It just, because I just let it float. I literally just let the weight of the tool. So you're not really getting all on the, the glue all the way off. No. And then I take a card scraper and I just get that last little bit. Just all right. I all do right. a combo effect, one two punch. I, I will allow that. <laughs> <laughs> I am super careful. Yeah, but um, it also means you got to be there at just the right moment of le yeah, leatheriness. Yeah, you can't because the problem is when it hardens, right? Then you're gonna if you take like a cabinet scraper after it hardens or something, then you're gonna take up little pieces well, of wood. That's the question. Yeah. And what if it is hard? Okay, this is this is a then really key thing. Yeah, um, and it's really for some reason cherry is really prone to this. If you let the glue line harden in cherry and you try to scrape that entire glue line off in one go you'll sort of lift up the wood. The glue will come up right. and you'll actually get a little tear out. And what, sh what happens is if you don't get the glue off soon enough and you wait for it to harden, what you have to think of is not taking all the glue off, you know, mm. 
all the way to the wood, but just basically shearing it off step by step by step. And you can either use a hand plane for that or a really sharp scraper mm -hmm. and just scrape very, very thin shavings until you get down to the wood. But yeah, you try to go there and get all that glue off at once like you do when it's leather hard and forget it. You're going to get a lot of tear out. So. Right. The science of glue removal. We can so, talk for hours about this. Um, are there really, I mean, to his third point, uh, third question, are there any other uses where the chisel plane can help you out, or do you feel like it's just, you know, Well, I, I have one and never, I've never found the right use for it. And I was uh, thinking of like a stop dado, which right. would be natural, but I think Mike's right. You know, if you've got a corner that needs cleaning up, just use a chisel. Chisel bevel down. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So hopefully Randy didn't spend oodles of money on a, you know, some fancy pants like bronze and silver platinum engraved uh, chisel plane. Maybe fingernail pairing would be a possible use. I don't know. All right. You guys ready for the next segment? Sure. This is going to be Tool Bombs, where we lament some of our worst tool purchases. Maybe it's a tool that uh, you'd just never use in a million years. Maybe it's just an odd gimmicky tool you thought would be awesome but turned out to be a major dud. Whatever it is, I want tool bomb stories. Let's do this. Mike. All right. You've got a good one. Actually, I I changed my story. I have oh, <laughs> wait a minute. No, no, no. I have Forget a, that other one. I have a tool bomb that I managed to defuse. Ooh. Oh, how so, about that? Um basically I work with a lot of quarter sawn white oak, which uh hand planing that can be a real bear. So I made one of the biggest tool, hand tool investments in my life. I bought a Lee Nielsen four and a half plane, big beefy guy with an extra high angle frog, 55 degree frog instead of the, the standard 45 because this was supposed to handle the really tricky wood. So it's like, you know, I finally got this, this thing, which, you know, um, certain family members still don't know how much it actually costs. <laughs> Got the thing sharpened oh. up and took it to this big six foot long. Rachel, you're out there. White oak. She never listens. It's like the, the safest bet in the world would be for <laughs> her to not listen to a podcast. Um, so I took it to this big white oak uh, tabletop and it just tore out immediately and I was crushed. So I put the beautiful plane up in my tool rack and there it sat for quite a while. Mm -hmm. Hence, Hence the tool bomb. This would have been my... Most unfortunate tool bomb. But? But we had done an article on back beveling. Chris Gochner talked about putting a back bevel on a plane iron to get it to cut at an even higher angle, which was a whole idea to get a steeper frog to begin with. And I thought, what if I do something crazy, crazy and back bevel this blade, which is already bedded at 55 degrees. So I put about a 10 degree back bevel on this. So now I'm planing it like 65 degrees, almost scraping. It is the most fantastic tool oh. I've ever used. It just just curly cherry, white oak. I had some cortisone sycamore, which you just look at it and it tore out. And this high angle uh, blade with the back bevel, it just gives it just a just as smooth as a baby's butt. Just really nice. So that is my potential tool bomb, which I eventually defused. Defused. Now, yes. were you wearing? Um, appropriate the, the Kevlar clothing. Yes, everything. Right. So right. Yeah. So you were at the bench, Kevlar suit, the visor. Yes, the Lexan visor. Okay. Yeah, with the little robot on the wheels. Yeah, I was nice. thinking you probably yes. used the robot. Yes. yes, you could do it from outside. Yeah, the I did shop. the back beveling with the robot. <laughs> yeah, it worked fantastic. Oh man! All right, now John. Um, John, yeah. you had a. I uh, may disappoint you on the on the uh, tool bomb. Uh, no, you had a whole front. sort of uh, outlook. 
on well yeah i was going to say I, I, what what it brought to mind for me was tools that i didn't buy that i desperately wanted and didn't buy i have had a couple of tool bomb experiences like this 3 in 1 bullnose rabbit plane that was useless for some of the same reasons we talked about before because in one uh configuration it was a chisel plane that was hopeless otherwise it was just really sharp edged and not much fun to use um but what I'd been thinking about was how there were certain tools that I just got obsessed with. Got to have that. That's the thing that I need. And when I was just starting out, um, the thing I really needed was this flush trim saw with a crank neck. So you could you could of course you could, clearly that you was going to make you uh, <laughs> the next Sam Malou. I had I had to have that thing. <laughs> Unfortunately, I was working as a furniture maker, so of course I couldn't afford it. And ironic. Um, and uh, I didn't get it and didn't get it, but, you know, I had the Garrett Wade catalog and I always would look at that. God, I've got to have that thing. And then um, I never quite got it. Um, and I and the same thing happened to me with my table saw. I bought a um, Your furniture-making journey ended at that point, I would imagine. <laughs> I, I, had a, I bought a Delta Unisaw, an old fit thing made in the 50s with its original – Fence. The, the jet lock fence. Oh my God, this fence is such a brute. I mean, you've got to like uh, measure at the back, measure at the front. You've got to bang it for a certain amount. And, um, and measure and, it right at the blade to get your distance. Oh yeah, get got the parallel every time you change every the time, fence. Oh yes. Every God. time. And, and so, so, of course, as soon as I got that saw, I thought, next thing I get is a Biesemeyer fence. I just have to get it. And that was almost 30 years ago, and I still don't have the Biesemeyer fence, nor do I have the flush trim saw. And I just think... <laughs> but you've been able to make furniture and persevere. Yes, regardless. to some extent, to the extent that I do, I've been able to... It just makes me think, yeah, you can kind of bump along without the tool that's going yeah. to change your life. This is the This is the syndrome that a lot of... Um, a lot of uh, woodworkers and photographers have the same syndrome of the, the shiny object syndrome. Like if, yeah. I can, if you're a photographer, it's like if I just get this other really expensive, awesome Leica camera, I will be the most yes. incredible photographer ever. And, no, actually you're still might, – you might want to just instead work on being a better photographer with the <laughs> equipment that you have. And it's the same thing in, in woodworking. Like I, I have that syndrome where I always want to get another awesome – like if I yeah. get this tool, oh my god. Yeah, I had this this notion to that because you, you sort of want to buy that expertise. And I was teaching a hand tool skills class, and, and it made me realize that – and it's, it goes along with, sure, any other skill-based thing. But especially woodworking, you can buy a tool, but you don't own it until you know how to use it, until you've made that investment. Ooh, oh, that's painful. You know, There's a whole stack like, of my tools. Say that again. I don't own yet. I mean, you have to earn that ownership. You have to learn how to sharpen it, learn how to use it, use it enough to where it's gotten you out of a few pickles here and there and build that bond. And then you don't necessarily own that tool, but it's become a part of you. Man. So that is the, that is the, the zen of hand tools for the day. All right. I'm down with that. I have no tool bombs this week, by the way. I, I couldn't. I couldn't think of. I couldn't think of one appropriate. But um, I definitely have suffered from that shiny object syndrome. And I was telling you before the we started recording that I, um, I was in my shop the other night that I've been working on setting up in my basement, and I realized, you know, I have a decently equipped shop, all the basics, you know. Sure. Uh, but anytime I get a Lee Valley. Veritas or a Lee Nielsen catalog, it's always like, 
Oh, wait, look at that. Oh. And I was standing <laughs> in my shop, and I realized, like, I don't need anything else. The occasional router bit or something. That's about it. A table saw blade, you know, that sort of stuff. But what the hell else do I need? I have a table saw and a bandsaw and a planer and a joiner and a bench, I mean, and some hand tools. Um, it, just chill out, Ed. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so my wallet will thank me. Um, but anyhow, okay. So let's move on. we got two more questions for the day. First one is from Anthony, and Anthony writes, uh, I'm relatively new to woodworking, and the podcast has been invaluable. I've been using mostly hand tools so far, and I'm looking at getting a bandsaw to speed up ripping and resawing. It's a toss-up between the Laguna 1412 and Laguna LT14 SUV, and I have a few questions. From what I can tell... SUV with a bandsaw on oh, board. Yeah, it's That's... a combination there. It's, <laughs> <laughs> from what I can tell, the key differences are the power of the motor, blade capacity, and the foot brake. I live in Australia, so most of the hardwoods I have access to are very, very hard. Uh, is wood hardness something to consider with regards to the motor power? So, you know, will the one and three quarter uh, horsepower motor in the 1412 be underpowered? Um, what effect does blade capacity have? Will there be a huge difference between a three quarter inch blade and a one inch blade when resawing? I'd also like to hear your thoughts on the carbide blades. Is it worth spending $200 on that? I don't want to buy the 1412 and then be disappointed. I didn't spend the extra money to get the SUV. At the same time, I don't want to spend the extra money if I don't need to do so. Oh, my gosh. What do I do? Mike, help this man. He's going to have a coronary. All right. Well, it's it's a great question. Um, you, you mentioned blade capacity, motor size, and foot brake. And I would— And carbide. Carbide. Let's let's hold Oof, off on that for just a that, sec. But of those three, basically, those are the two the, the major distinctions between these machines. So I would rate those in importance by um, probably the least important would be blade capacity. You mentioned because I typically I keep a, a half inch blade on my saw, do all my resawing and regular cutting with that. Matt Kenny, he may go up to three quarters, um, but for the most part, you know, I think it's. Not as important as the width of the blade, but just make sure it's sharp. Uh, you know, usually it's a, a three TPI blade, really aggressive blade, which is going to clear the sawdust for you. So that's the blade capacity is the least important thing. The motor capacity, if you're doing a lot of resawing, uh, primarily resawing on this saw in harder woods, yeah, the motor is going to make a little bit of a difference. Now might... You had an anecdote about that. Yeah, I had a 14-inch Delta with a one-and-a-half horse uh, motor, and it was fine, but my resawing was pretty slow. I have a 17-inch uh, a bandsaw now with, I think, a two, maybe three horse. It's a, it's a 220 machine. Yeah. And uh, it, I definitely, with a sharp blade, I just zip through resaw. So I think that is an important thing. The foot brake, for me personally, um, it's a fantastic thing. I have that on my new saw. And, and bandsaws can take a while to wind down. And that's really when they're at their most dangerous is after the machine is turned off, but that blade is still spinning because it's, it's dead quiet, but there's a lot of inertia in that blade and you can uh, cut yourself really quick if you come in contact with that. So for convenience, um, I love the foot brake. I would pay a couple extra hundred bucks for a foot brake on a bandsaw, everything else equal considered. So that would be how I might weigh the purchase of these two saws. Uh, and then the carbide blade, um, yeah, carbide lasts a really long time. You can get an awesome cut with a carbide bandsaw blade. The problem is on a bandsaw with a smaller diameter wheel, that blade is zipping around at a pretty tight radius. And what's going to happen is that blade will actually fatigue and break 
way before you you get into you wearing out, out the, the carbide. carbide teeth yeah. and getting your money's worth out of the blade. So I would look for less expensive blades, uh, keep them sharp, replace them more often, um, and um, you should be in good shape. You don't use those new titanium alloy blades? <laughs> I, I use, yeah. Hmm. No, I don't. <laughs> oh, okay. You didn't know about that, huh? I don't. Well, score one for Ed. Okay. Um, all right. Next question. This comes from Chris. Uh, Chris writes, I'm in the market to buy a shaper or a router table. I've done some research and found for a quality product, one could spend 400 to $1,500, which I don't think is so unreasonable. Well, la-di-da, Chris. What do you think? So, um, actually, John, you've worked in a number of... Of uh, of furniture shops uh, throughout your career, what do you think about this shaper versus router table conundrum? Well, um, it seems to me that that uh, you you would only really need a shaper if you're producing um, just miles of millwork or molding or um, you know tons of doing tons of doors windows. Um, it's a little like the difference between you know router table and a shaper. They do work in just the same way but the uh, capacity and the cost is is radically different and the danger factor is radically yeah. different i mean basically it's a snow blower versus a uh, 5 ton uh, pickup with a huge with a <laughs> snow plow on yeah. the front right as mike mentioned so um i guess um and, and not only that, the, there's the cost of the of the shaper itself, but also the mm -hmm. cost of the cutters, which are big and very expensive. Um, yeah, I, I used a shaper a fair amount and never quite got over my um, respect, shall we say, for it. It was uh, i.e. fear. Yeah, <laughs> naked fear when that thing was like standing next to 747, gearing up and. Um, you know, and there were stories about the thing throwing blades across the shop, and I didn't oh. really want to be a recipient. And now, router table—you can do tons with a with a router table. Um, and in, for most furniture making and cabinet making, I don't think you really have to have a shaper. Yeah, it's overkill. It's overkill, and it's spending money that you just don't need to spend. Yeah, right. And to John's point, I think they're they're tools designed for for different end uses, really. It's, you're either running tons of millwork or you're doing furniture. And if you're doing furniture, I think for the most part, a, a router in a router table is a good way to go. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, listen, guys, we, uh, I always say we get lots of comments on our page in the iTunes store. And every week we like to acknowledge the kind folks who leave words of encouragement up there, sometimes a little bit of criticism. So here we go for this week. Ponch94 and I wonder if he got his handle from Chips. I just want to know because I was a big fan of that show. Um, <laughs> great podcast. Just learned about this show from Drunken Woodworker. Love it. Very entertaining. Lumber Junkie wrote, a good, honest, informative talk show. Keep up the great work. I've been a subscriber, and this puts a personality to the authors of articles I've been reading for years. Love your candid comments about your techniques and tools. Very informative, and the interviews are one of my favorite spots. And finally, KB in Minnesota wrote, great content, love the content and personalities that come through. That about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on May 2nd for our next episode. Uh, in the meantime, you can show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes and by all means, click that five-star rating. 
Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at taunted.com, T-A-U-N-T-O-N.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Cheers, everybody. See ya. Now, Billy, being in the NYPD, uh, I feel I should mention that back when I lived in Brooklyn, I had a rather expensive watch stolen from my apartment during a burglary. (laughs) This would have been in the Sheepshead Bay, um, Gravesend area, uh, East 15th and Avenue U. That was in 2001. I still haven't heard back on the watch's retrieval. Can you look into this, Billy? Please.